Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Belfast in Northern Ireland was one of the great industrial cities of the United Kingdom on the outbreak of war in 1939. But for various reasons, as you'll hear, it was not widely believed that it would be a target of the German Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, in any bombing that would take place across the British Isles in the Second World War. The government in Belfast, the authorities, refused to take the necessary preparations that ensured that loss of life, loss of property, would be limited in the event of German air raids. The cost of their naive optimism was paid in the lives of the men, women and children in Belfast. Throughout April and May 1941, there were four raids. There was a particularly awful raid on the evening of the 15th of April. Over 750 people were killed, which we think makes it the bloodiest single raid outside London of any raid on Britain during the Second World War. Half of the houses in Belfast were damaged. There were so many bodies to deal with afterwards that they were thrown into mass graves. It was a devastating attack and it wasn't the last one. In this episode of the podcast, I want to talk to Jim O'Neill. He's been on the podcast before talking about uh, Queen Elizabeth I's travails, her disastrous campaigns in Ireland. He's a Belfast-born former archaeologist, now a historian. He works at the Northern Ireland War Memorial Museum, and he's been collecting stories and publicising stories about the Belfast Blitz. My grandpa was in the Canadian Navy during the Second World War. Belfast was a key terminus for supplies coming across the Atlantic convoy routes. And he remembers all too well the damage, the destruction of that blitz. He would tell me about it when I was young. And now here comes Jim O'Neill to tell all of us about the Belfast Blitz. Jim, thanks very much for coming back on the podcast. Great to be here, Dan. Ireland in the First World War had been a part of the United Kingdom. Now Ireland was in a very different position in the Second World War. Did that change? Was there a difference, do you think, on the ground in Ireland? Just at the start of the war, the fact that the South was neutral, but the North was very much in this Second Great War? I think what we see is there's a fundamental separation between the whole experience of Great Britain and Northern Ireland during the war. And one of those reasons was definitely the existence of the border between Northern Ireland and the neutral South. And what we see is, certainly considering contemporary politics going on at the minute, you see a separation that perhaps people don't remember. Because of the land border with a neutral country, you see things like the way the North is even treated by Great Britain is different. You see the post is censored between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. There's sort of like a ring fence, what is described as of security around Great Britain that Northern Ireland is not part of. 
And part of that reason is the border, which is seen as a potential weakness for intelligence. All the telephone lines between Great Britain and Northern Ireland are tapped 24 hours a day. There's travel restrictions in the south. Uh, in Dublin, you still have things like the Italian and German legations are still there. So it's seen as a big security risk, and the government of Westminster is very, very aware of this. You also see things like the south still has a territorial claim in the north, and so De Valera, the Irish tea shop, is very much expresses that all Ireland is not part of the war. So he has this continual complaint that Ireland shouldn't be used, or Northern Ireland shouldn't be part of the war effort. But to tell you the truth, the way Northern Ireland even saw itself, it saw itself as quite separate. In fact, there were some sort of ongoing opinions that this was England's war. It seems quite naive in retrospect, considering what happens in World War II. But Northern Ireland, even in its very tone of the way the war started and the way it continued up until the Blitz, it saw itself as something different, even though it was a centre of industry and things like shipyards and aircraft manufacture. It should have been a target, but this there was an all-pervading idea that somehow Northern Ireland would escape the attentions of the Germans, which turned out to be quite false. And also, there was no conscription. Uh, conscription was in force in Britain, but not in Northern Ireland. And obviously, lots and lots of Northern Irish people and some Southern Irish people volunteered to fight for the British Army in the Second World War, but it was not mandatory. And that must have made it feel very different as well. It was totally different. There was no conscription. So there was actually talk of bringing it in, but then... The, the British government realised that it actually might be more trouble than it's worth, both the actual enforcement of it and the political ramifications, including in the uh, United States with a large Irish-American lobby. But they also feared that there was actually a significant amount of recruitment in this South, and they thought that would dry up completely. But with that, and the fact is that Northern Ireland was a net producer of foodstuffs during the war, so even though there was rationing, it didn't bite as deeply in Northern Ireland as it did in Great Britain. So what you see is... Certainly the mass observation group that was studying morale across the United Kingdom noticed that there was a very different atmosphere in Northern Ireland. What they considered Ireland wasn't really in the war, didn't see itself as part of the war. Things like the long shifts, the long working shifts that were instituted for war production in Great Britain hadn't happened here. In 1940, you still had a week's stoppage of all the factories during the 12th fortnight, which was we have the orange demonstrations and the commemoration of the Battle of the Bourne. Industry stopped for an entire week in 1940. They just didn't see themselves as part of it. And there was a pervading idea right from top to bottom, from political leaders all the way to the people on the street, is they believed that Northern Ireland just would not be attacked for a number of different reasons. One, they believed that Northern Ireland was too far away from Germany. It was just too far and too hard to defend, even at the very top of the political leadership in Northern Ireland. There's quotes of politicians saying, oh, shit, the Germans just wouldn't be able to find Belfast, or they just wouldn't be bothered. There was far more tempting targets in Great Britain, so they wouldn't come here. And some even fell back on the idea that Belfast would be protected by the defences in Great Britain. That, no, there's there was anti-aircraft batteries and barrage balloons and fighter defences all up from Scotland and England and Wales that anything that tried to get across this would be destroyed. And so Belfast was essentially shielded by Great Britain. And the more extreme, actually, they all even now, even sitting, you think it's almost naive, is that they believed that because De Valera had stated that all of Ireland should be free of German attack, and he'd actually make approaches to the German legation in Dublin saying that Belfast should be considered as part of Ireland, it shouldn't be attacked. It seems ridiculous now, but this was actually given credence in the higher levels of political and even military thinking in Great Britain. And so there was a massive lack of preparedness 
throughout Northern Ireland, but definitely in Belfast. They just had no concept of what was coming. It's interesting that they hoped that that might be the case, de Valera's sort of approach, given that Northern Ireland was, as you point out, a massive centre of particularly shipbuilding in Belfast. But Northern Ireland is one of the most militarised landscapes in the United Kingdom during the Second World War. That just seems to be bases and significant military sites all over, partly because of the Battle of the Atlantic and for lots of reasons. So it was certainly a military target, wasn't it? Oh, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, if you actually look at the numbers that came out of it throughout the war, you why did we even think for a second that this wasn't going to happen? Like, if you look at the sheer numbers, the shipyards over World War II brought out about 140 warships, maybe 123 merchant ships. Short Harland, the aircraft manufacturers, built the uh, Sterling bombers, and more important to the Battle of the Atlantic, the short Sunderland seaplanes. So not only did they build those, they built, I think it was 80 million aircraft components. You had the Mackey's Foundry, which was one of the major manufacturers for 40 millimeter anti-aircraft shells. You had the linen mills, which over the course of the war produced 200 million yards of canvas. And the rope works produced a quarter of a million tons of cordage. This is a rope for the Royal Navy. This is huge amounts. And even when you come into the fall of France, and then, of course, you have the convoys coming out through the north of Ireland. Belfast gets established as a Royal Naval base, and it becomes a, what's the word for it, an assembly area for convoys. So when you look at it in those terms, you're like, of course it's going to be on a target. And you're not even considering the troop concentrations, you know, the barracks and the aircraft bases that are being manufactured across the north. I suppose it's maybe in retrospect, you wonder what were they thinking, but I think there was possibly a level of cognitive dissonance and they just, like anyone else, didn't want the war to arrive, but it was coming whether they liked it or not. Unfortunately, the lack of preparedness is shocking. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. Very few deep bunkers in London. That's why everyone took to the underground stations, but presumably it was much, much worse than in Belfast. Well, you wouldn't believe it. Like the politics at the time, the government just wasn't prepared for it at all. It was more concerned with local issues. But even the relationships between the government in Northern Ireland and the government in Great Britain, things like the 1937 Air Raid Precautions Act, which under its terms, it sort of set out you know, the obligations for local authorities for air raid precautions. Northern Ireland was excluded from that. So the laws that actually would have gave resources for that, Northern Ireland was set aside from that. It was like, well, you sort yourselves out. And then this followed down all the way through the strata of everything that should have been prepared. There was pre-recruitment for the ARP and the Auxiliary Fire Service. The ARP actually in itself was seen as, what were the descriptions of it? Sort of like busybody fusspots, people that were coming around and annoying you and rapping your door about the blackout joke. There's so little enforcement the blackout or just at hey, here's to it. There's something like 15,000 prosecutions just in North Ireland about blackout infringements. Flights would take off from the nearby airfield of group to see what the blackout was like. Where do we even start? Like, it was just ridiculous. Put it this way, I'm probably jumping ahead. By the time the first raid comes in May, the lighthouses in Belfast Lock are still lit. The shelter provision was appalling. There's something like 25% of the population in Belfast had a shelter of 60,000 eligible for free shelters. 4,000 had them in Belfast. There's 700 public shelters that were built, which, like I said, could take about 25% of the population. And these were built in narrow streets and they were appalling. They were just these narrow surface shelters. Now, to be fair, we couldn't have underground shelters in Belfast because Belfast, the way the hydrology is, got a very shallow water table. So you dig into the ground a meter and it floods instantly. So no ambition shelters there. But what shelters they did build basically became an annoyance and they just got busy, turned into areas for antisocial behavior. They turned into essentially areas for prostitutions and pimps to ply their trade. There was court and couples getting up to their nocturnal dalliances. They were also used for like public toilets. So to the extent that doors were put on some of them, they're literally locked up, which defeats its purpose. Then the next and more tragic element of it is the evacuation of procedures for children. Now, one of the common features that you would see coming up in the history of the Blitz in Great Britain would be the evacuation of children into the country. 
Now in Belfast, there were 70,000 children were eligible and they did try. There was an initial drive to have children sent to the countryside. And all those 70,000, 17,000 registered on the day they were meant to turn up, a thousand turned up. There just was no sense of urgency. And they tried it again later on with 5,000 registered and 1,700 turned up. And one of the key features that people that were coming from England that were subject to the Blitz were coming to Belfast and going, where are all these kids from? The street was full of kids compared to no urban areas in Great Britain. Uh, And unfortunately, that would be reflected in the casualties to come. And the lack of preparedness even comes as far into the military side of it. The anti-aircraft defences were visible. Belfast was defended by, was it, 16 heavy anti-aircraft guns and six light, which was like less than a quarter of a contemporary, no, a similar size city in Britain. There was no night fighters. There was no searchlights. There were barrage balloons, and that was about the limit of it. But ultimately, Belfast was just exposed. There, there was nothing stopping either psychologically or physically. They were completely unprepared for what was to come. So there was a probing raid, wasn't there, on the 7th, 8th of May. Was that a wake-up call? I wish you could say it was, but unfortunately there was bad weather over Great Britain and so some bombers had diverted to Belfast's secondary target because of clear weather. They're not quite sure how many attacked, but it was about 13 tracks and the raid start at midnight and lasted till about just after half three. Now Belfast wasn't exactly hard to find because like I said, the lighthouses were lit. And the detection of them was very poor. Apparently, when the raid started, people described as they heard the aircraft, then they heard the guns, then they heard the siren. Because of the clear weather, they dropped flares to identify their targets. The guns opened up, and even the Germans in their later reports described the uh, anti-aircraft defences scant. They even got to the point where they could dive bomb their targets. But because they could see the targets very well, they could hit the dock area with great accuracy. Soon you had like wood storage yards were ablaze. There was actually a sterling fuselage yard. It was, there was 50 sterling fuselages destroyed. By the time the raid was over, about 15 were killed. But what actually it did instill is it actually still a false sense of what was to come because of the small amount of damage, relatively speaking, and the small amount of casualties. People started to think, maybe this is okay. Maybe Belfast can take this. And the, even in the press, they said, about, oh, this cordon of steel put up by the anti-aircraft fire. The only thing the anti-aircraft guns hit, there was three of their own barrage balloons. But it gave this false idea of what was to happen. And also because it was so well targeted by the Germans, very few people actually used their shelters. And in fact, people came out of their doors and gathered in the street and talked about the bomb and speculated about, well, where do you think they're hitting? And no, they said it was almost like spectators of a football match. And it just totally glossed over any sort of dangers and created this really, really dangerous illusion for what was to happen. You listen to Dan Snow's History Hit, talking about the terrible blitz on Belfast during the Second World War. More coming up. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. 
It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. And so tell me what did happen. When are the heavier raids? Well, eventually comes to Easter. By that stage, you'd seen a shift in German targeting. They were hitting important centers like Bristol and Tyneside and things like that. And um, what we end up seeing is even local government is saying we're definitely going to get hit to the extent that they decide they have to actually hide it from the public. That there's definitely going to be something happen. But even on the radio, if actually have Lord Haha, one of his transmissions says there would be Easter eggs for Belfast. So definitely they knew something was happening. And there had been German reconnaissance aircraft over Belfast. And so eventually on the night of this 15th, the 16th of April, that's when the Germans actually came. Now, what we can say is the alert started about about 10.40. And about an hour later, the reports say that you'd hear the drone, the planes coming from the south. And what they did, they'd actually flown out of a cardigan bay and were coming up the Irish Sea. But what was also noticed is that there was actually cloud cover over Belfast. So actually part of about the third of the bombers that were destined for Belfast didn't attack. So what they describe is the bombers come up and they hear this low drone and that comes up and passes to the east of Belfast. And then about six miles north of Belfast, it turns and the German bombers start coming back down to the northeast, coming down Belfast Lock. One of the things they described is it's very hard to hide Belfast from the air because you can't black out the water. And basically where the water ends, even with an effective blackout, where the black starts, that's where the city is and that's where the industrial area is. So targeting-wise, it was a, a easy target to find, but the cloud cover, in this case, had caused problems with the German Pathfinders. Now, the German Pathfinders turned up about an hour later after the alert started, and they were the first of about 180 bombers to reach Belfast. But the thing is, because of the cloud cover, and there was also a smoke screen operation, these, one of the first things that happened with the raid when the alert started was these smoke dischargers started to belch out what was described as this black cloud and smoke, which actually blanketed large sections of the industrial area, which also that in the cloud cover meant that the Pathfinders dropped their targeting flares and targeting incendiaries to the west and the north of the city. Um, what was actually described by one of the our raid wardens on time was quite eerie because at first you saw these bright magnesium flares come down and he actually wondered why you would need a blackout at all because one of the descriptions was you'd read a packet of cigarettes. It was like daylight in Belfast just as the raid started. So once actually the bombers start coming, you see the first of 203 tons of high explosives, 29,000 incendiaries fall on Belfast. 87 of those are the uh, parachute mines. Now these horrific 1,500 kilogram bombs are parachute mines that slowly descend. And the effect on these closely packed terraced houses was absolutely devastating. What's also worse for Belfast is that what little defences 
existed. One of the earliest bombs, I think about one o'clock, just as the raid is really starting to reach its worst, one of the bombs hit the central telephone exchange, instantly knocking out any sort of targeting data that was being sent to the anti-aircraft batteries. So they all fall silent. And so then the bombers get to attack without any hindrance at all. What was it like on the ground? You've recorded some personal stories about the individuals caught up in it. It was appalling. Now, the emergency services were pushed beyond limits. They said people just didn't know how to behave. They said that the population, because they weren't used to this sort of thing, they actually clustered in groups together in houses because they didn't want to be alone. The dying in, in certain places was just appalling. The, the reports coming in through the ARP, people knew that something terrible had happened. You get things like Hogarth Street, where 70 people were killed, Atlantic Avenue, 40 people killed. In Ballinier Street, there's 30 people killed. In one house, there's 16 people taken out of it, all dead. The York Street Mill, that had this great wall I end with this from personal stories from family up there. They remember Via Street. There was a large six-story wall that went around the mill and a parachute mine collapsed this and fell on Via Street and Sussex Street, killing over 40 people. And then the Percy Street shelter, a parachute mine hit it and descriptions again from family members. They said that there was one actually saw it and they said it was like a, a butcher shop. For my own personal end, these stories actually proliferate all across Belfast where I had a, an aunt who was a uh, area warden and now they'd been to a dance in the Ulster Hall. The crowd inside the I'd been told I will shelter in, in the building, but her team said they had to go to their Trinity Street Church post because that was what they had to do in their role. 18, 19 kids. And so they made their way up. And even in uh, accounts later on, Jimmy Doherty, who wrote about Post 301 on, on the raids, and he said he saw the Trinity Street wardens coming up and going to their post. And they went to their post at the Trinity Street Church. And he actually saw the parachute mine drift down towards it and hit the spire of the church. And of course, went off. Devastating results. The church collapsed and killed everyone on the Trinity Street Warden's Post Department, my aunt, a friend that was with her, but she was so badly injured that she ended up in one of the temporary mortuaries in Falls Baths. And it was only actually someone coming past, seeing these lines of bodies. The stories actually come out from her are awful. The person that walked past noticed that this girl was still alive. And so she was actually taken from rows of corpses and taken to hospital. But the stories that were coming out of the temporary mortuaries were just traumatic, to say the least. The hospitals were inundated with unprecedented level of casualties. In one example, they said that there were the dead on the alive were getting brought to the hospital. And in one case, I get this from Jimmy Doherty's account. And he said there was just this large misshapen package arrived at the mortuary. And there was just a label on it that said woman and five children. He, he said some of the things that he'd seen, he couldn't recount for years. And these stories again passed through social memory. And these stories are replicated time and time again across North and West Belfast because of this raid. And it was the, apart from London, it was the bloodiest night of the Blitz. Ultimately, I think the final count for the number of casualties, and even then it's disputed, is about 744 were killed in the raid, and that's just the civilian casualties. But as, as, as awful as it was and as traumatic as it was, the stories that come out again and again and again, the horrors that were visited on the streets, had something that Belfast had never seen, never has seen in those sort of numbers. But there was also stories that came out that actually fills you with some sort of faith in humanity. One of the stories is that around four o'clock in the morning, when the emergency service was entirely overwhelmed, a cable went out, was sent to Devil Air in the south, asking for assistance. And so again, he asked the Dublin Fire Brigade, could they get volunteers? And so they, there were 75 men volunteered to come north in 13 engines. And that's the Dunleary, Dublin, Drogheda and Dundalk Fire Brigades came north and started arriving about nine in the morning. And they helped out. When I say helping out, there was fire crews that were just exhausted by working throughout the night. And so they took over their duties up on Crumlin Road up in North Belfast. And they worked throughout the day helping with rescue. And this is actually when bombs are still going off. There's something like 10 to 20% of the bombs dropped during the, the raid were delayed action bombs. So just because the planes had passed overhead didn't mean the danger wasn't still there. 
And these crews worked as volunteers in the city up until I think it was eight o'clock was the last one was withdrawn in the evening because they couldn't risk having crews from a neutral country in case the Germans came back that night. The effect was was devastating on the city. And like I say, temporary mortuaries were set up in St. George's Markets and Peter's Hill Baths and Falls Public Baths. And you had lines of hundreds of bodies. For days afterwards, you had people file past these bodies looking for relatives. Just that part alone is so traumatic. And many of those people would have been homeless, right? I mean, something like 100,000 people had damaged homes? 100,000 people were made temporarily homeless. Over half the housing stock in Belfast was damaged or destroyed. The effect on public morale was devastating. One of the examples of when people went to the temporary mortuaries, there's one woman there was a nurse during the Somme, and she said she hadn't experienced anything like this. The war and the nature of the way these people had died stripped all level of dignity off them. And we're talking like men, women, children that were killed, of which a third of them were children, because again, there was no evacuation. And even then, there's a huge amount that weren't identified. I, I think I see statistics of all raids in Great Britain. There's something like 560, 570 were buried unidentified. In just this raid, in Belfast, 130 to 140 remained unidentified and ended up buried in two mass graves in the city cemetery and Milltown Cemetery. And the effect on morale was devastating. What you end up seeing was a mass evacuation as people in their tens of thousands that night started to make their way out of the city. By the end of April, you're looking at about 100,000. By the end of May, you're looking at which 200,000 people had left the city. And even that night, people who were staying in the city still went out and slept in the countryside. Tens of thousands clogged the roads almost and every avenue at a time just to sleep in ditches and hedges. The fear was basically all-encompassing in the fear that the German bombers would come back. Wow. And did the German bombers come back? They did come back. What I can say is at least the shock also did galvanise things like the ARP. But the Germans had considered the attack a failure because they largely missed. There was some damage to the harbour estate. The main brunt of the bombing raid landed on civilian housing, which... The Germans were not actually looking to target. But they did. They come back on the 4th and 5th of May in what we call the fire raid. And the reason for that is like the sirens go off at midnight. And of course, they get descriptions against these low rumble coming up overhead about one in the morning. Now, it's a much shorter raid. It only lasts about two hours, but it's far more intense. The Germans actually turn up this time and it's cloudless, clear skies for miles in all directions. So Belfast is not hard to find. They come on the same flight path and make, make it a northeastern approach. And they get their targets over the course of the raid, which again, like I say, only lasted two hours, they dropped 237 tons. And this time, whereas remember we said the last time there's 36,000 incendiaries dropped, this time there's 96,000 incendiaries are dropped on this cloudless night, which is massively impact on the harbour state, on the shipyards, on the aircraft factories. And within no time at all, you have vast swathes of the harbour state are an inferno. Ships in the shipyards, three corvettes that are near completion, they're destroyed. There's three supply ships that are sink on their marines. Now the fires, they just consume workshops, areas of the shipyard. One German, he describes on his approach that he can see the glow of Belfast from 200 kilometers away as he approaches Belfast. It's something that really can't be described. To say that there wasn't any civilian casualties in this really would be absolutely wrong. The very nature of strategic bombing at the time was that inherent inaccuracy meant that even with a well-targeted raid that hit mostly the targets that they were looking for, here, there's large areas of streets in the east of the city that sat adjacent to the shipyards that they were also hit as well. And again, you get the same repeat of entire streets being demolished by things like parachute mines. But in this case, they were much fewer, still a large amount. There was 202 people were killed, much less than the east of Tuesday. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. One was there was a better knowledge of what would happen. People had fear in them. 
and they actually used the shelters that were provided. There's also the fact that there was such a large amount of people that left the city. So with the evacuation, it reduced the number of people that would potentially be killed or injured. Believe it or not, there was people a much stronger anti-aircraft defence in this raid than the last. Uh, even the Germans actually mentioned themselves that the active defences were more effective. And also what you're looking at is the accuracy of the attack because it fell largely on the industrial areas. And also a lot of the incendiaries fell on the commercial part of town. So there's huge tracks of the centre in of Belfast where the commercial shops were. All went to the blaze, High Street, Bridge Street, all the big shopping streets. There's huge tracks that just ended up in absolute inferno. And even reports when they were coming in from the auxiliary fire service just said, there is nothing we can do. The high-explosive bombs had actually ruptured, much like the other raids had ruptured large amounts of the water mains. Frequently, the water pressure just dropped and they had nothing to fight the fires, even if they could. The fires were just one fire joined into another fire, joined in until it was just this huge conflagration. There's photographs that show this that are available online that the fires were some to be believed. Without actually even asking me us this time, um, there was no need for a cable from the north. The volunteer Devilair actually issued an order that when he first heard there was a raid, he just issued the order straight to the Dublin Fire Service, gather volunteers. And in this case, you also saw a repeat down this time that 130 men volunteered to come up in fire tenders and ambulances and did the same thing again when they come up and helped out and helped fight the fires and returned the next day. And then the following night after that, the Germans still weren't done with Belfast, but this time there's a much, much smaller raid. Perhaps three planes attacked the night after that. I leave those there was casualties, there was 22 killed, but that was the last of the raids on Belfast. In other cities in the United Kingdom, the Blitz is memorialised, it's talked about, it's taught in schools. That's not as much the case in Belfast. Why is that? It's hard to actually say. To be honest, straight after the raids, there was a huge amount of bitterness. Because there was such a collapse of public services and the way it was reported, there was lots of the usual things about how Belfast can take it and Belfast stands united against the Germans. And people didn't believe this at all. As far as they were concerned, certainly after the Easter Tuesday raid and the lack of defence, they felt quite abandoned and they felt that they were disgusted at these sort of reports that there was no Belfast can't take it. No, because there was just such a shock and it was so so traumatising. There should be thousands of these stories and there are thousands of these stories that permeate Belfast and they have to exist. But for some reason, maybe is it because later history of Belfast, sort of, there was no silence that you got after all wars. One of the common things is people don't talk about these things. Certainly, even in England, Great Britain, when people have wartime experiences, normally it takes years for these things to come out. Possibly Belfast didn't get that because Belfast later traumatic issues sort of moved on to that and people just want to forget about it. But certainly collections officer in the Northern Ireland War Memorial Museum and we would work with people and encourage them to contact us to try and bring out these oral histories and bring them to us they can contact us. And we would see these oral histories as a key component to these people's stories, people's family histories. And we would like to try and bring those together before they're gone to try and rebuild and build up on people's understanding of just what happened and how people felt both during the raids and after the raids. One of the things that actually I find quite strange and quite puzzling is that Belfast, even though there were so many people killed, over 950 died in the raids, there's no public memorial to this day. You'll find memorials about the Titanic and all the rest of that. Titanic, there's something like two or three people from Belfast died in Titanic. But something that devastated Belfast, possibly because you'll have large sections, say South Belfast and maybe parts of West Belfast and parts of the city that essentially were just ringside. The, the devastation happened because it was so concentrated. Perhaps there's a whole dichotomy of experiences. It's hard actually to say why when it is such a traumatizing experience. 
But hopefully we can actually change that to try and get a proper public memorial that helps people remember just what happened and what people suffered. And perhaps it's things like the Troubles, it's not taking all the air away from remembrance, that that's where the focus of remembrance is. But it's something that hopefully we can actually bring into fruition, a proper and fitting memorial to people that died and the people that suffered and what was definitely one of Belfast's darkest stars. Well, thank you very much, Jim, for talking to us about it and for all the work you're doing. It's an extraordinary story. Thanks for coming on the podcast. If people want to learn more, where do they go? I'd say the first place to go, Northern Ireland War Memorial has a website, niwarmemorial.org. They can go on there and they can find out about the Belfast Blitz. There's blog stories and there's contacts where they can come to us if they have stories or family stories that they want to have recorded and archived for future generations or even things that we've had people come in with just objects from the Blitz that they want to record or sometimes donate, they can go there and we're more than happy to hear from them. Thanks for all the work you're doing there. People can go to niwarmoral.org. Thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, Jim. Thank you, Stan. Thanks for having us back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.